I want you to imagine that you are the son or the daughter of a king, a wealthy king, so that you could have all your heart desires, all the treasures your mind could imagine. Not that the king is indulgent. While he lavishes his gifts on you, he does so in a way that is always best, even if you don't always get it. Because, you see, your, your father, the king, is a loving king. He loves you deeply, and you are the apple of his eye. While he is busy running his rather large kingdom, he's never too busy for you. You can pop into the throne room whenever you want, and he gives you his full and undivided attention. Now, sometimes in your youthful impetuosity, you ask for things that the wise and loving king knows is not best, and so he graciously declines. <laughs> you know, you want the shiny new Lamborghini Veneno, I mean, it is the most expensive sports car in the world, but it only costs $3.9 million. That's nothing for him, but it also has 750 horsepower and a top speed of 221 miles per hour. And so you're very smart. Dad says, no, I think your 70 VW bug that tops out at 75 going downhill is good enough. So this is the kind of father that you have. And along comes an imposter, a fake, a charlatan, and he wants, to, he wants to woo your attention away from your benevolent, loving dad. He makes all kinds of empty promises. Oh, he says, you think you have it all now? Come with me, and I'll give you more. Here's a question, more of what? Here's a more important question. Would you go? Would you throw away everything for the promise of more? It's kind of a silly question. Why would you throw away everything when you have everything to get more than what you've already got? The point, this is the point that Paul is going to make to his readers in Colossians chapter 2. He, he, he spent chapter 1 reminding us of, of what we have in Jesus, of who Jesus is. He, is. he is everything. We just sang it, and he is ours. He's not just one option among many good options. He's the only option, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things were created, things in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or, or, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created for him, and make no mistake about it, uh, excuse me, through him and for him. He is before all things, I tell you, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Are you starting to get just a little glimpse that Jesus is everything? That a promise of something more than Jesus does not exist. <laughs> you see, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus and, and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. He did that by making peace through the blood of his cross. And while you, you were 
formerly hostile toward Jesus, engaged in evil deeds and even liking it, he, he reconciled you. He, he adopted you into this very wealthy family through his own death to present you before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And it was the Apostle Paul's job to share that very, very good news. He was a minister of this message of reconciliation. And so he shared it and suffered for it. But, but that's okay because his suffering fulfilled his commission and filled up in his flesh that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. He understood that suffering was part of serving Christ. You don't always get the Lamborghini. He took his share because he knew that the mystery and the treasure was Christ in you, the hope of glory, and his passion was to proclaim Jesus so that he could present every one of you complete in Christ. But some fakes, some imposters, some charlatans, some false teachers showed up promising more. Well, you get that. More than Jesus, the one, you know, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you could ever dream of. Therefore, he told us last week, as you've received Jesus as this treasure, the Christ, the, the Savior, the Lord of your life, continue to walk in him. Don't get distracted. You've, you've been deeply rooted in him. You're being built up in him. You're being established in the faith. The grand result of all of this is that you are overflowing with gratitude toward a, a heavenly father, this, this king who has given you everything. And so, verses 8 to 15 of chapter 2, Paul continues. Read it with me. See to it. Keep walking with Jesus. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you are, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a, a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If you if you have all of that, why would you believe an imposter? Why would you believe a fake? Why would you even listen to these false teachers? This is Paul's encouragement to us this morning. Folks, you have it all. 
You have it all. Why would you trade it in for the empty promise of something more when there is no more? Not exactly sure all of these false teachers were saying, but somehow they were, they were trying to take the, these Colossians captive through a philosophy of empty deception. Now, I'm going to try and and piece together what we know about this from, from verse 8. But, but, but know this, we're headed to verses 9 to 15, and Paul is going to remind us of what we have in Christ. And the implication is why, why would you be taken captive by false teaching when you, when you have all of this? Outline is going to follow that train of thought. He's going to warn us about false Teachers promising more, promising something different than Jesus. And then, and then he's going to remind us of our great wealth in Christ. So look at verse 8 with me. It gets a little complicated. But frankly, I don't want to get bogged down in, in, in this verse. See to it. Uh, he says this is the second command now that he's reached the, made, uh, the main part of, of the letter. Last week his first command was just as you received Jesus as the Christ and the Lord, keep, keep walking in, in him. Stay with him. And the flip side of the coin is keep your eyes focused on him. Pay attention so that no one draws you away from Jesus. No one takes you captive. The word speaks of being carried away as plunder, which is an apt description of false teaching and and false religions and false cults because they will seek to carry you off as plunder, as spoils of war. He says, pay attention. See to it that this does not happen to you. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Now, Paul is not condemning philosophy uh, itself. Philosophy is kind of a neutral word. It's uh, any system of, uh, of philosophy is a system of thought that seeks to answer the ultimate questions of life. You know, who are we? You know, who am I? <laughs> you know, why am I here? Is there a God? Uh, how do I know him? Uh, what about life after death? Again, the word itself is not negative as long as it answers those questions rightly. But these false teachers had arrived with a new philosophy with wrong answers. Empty deception, empty truths, and empty promises. Paul goes on to describe their philosophy in some general terms, in, these, in three prepositional phrases. Their philosophy first was according to the tradition of men. This is in opposition to those traditions that were handed down and received by the Colossians. That was last week, and there's a little bit of a disconnect, but last week he says you received this tradition that was divinely inspired, it was true, and you received it, and now these guys show up with this man-made tradition. Don't believe it. it, it it's, it's, it's from them. They've made it up. It reminds us of Jesus' words when he was condemning the teaching of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Something that Paul actually had these words in mind. Neglecting, Jesus said to them, the commandment of God, 
that which was divinely inspired and came from God, they neglected that and they're holding on to the traditions of men. Don't do that. Don't be taken captive by that, these empty promises that people will make to you. Second, their philosophy was according to the elementary principles of the world. Lots of very confusing discussion about what Paul means by this very unusual word, elementary principles. I I waded through the pages and pages of of reading, and it seems to me that regardless of the discussion, everyone ends up more or less in the same place. You just get there different ways. You see, if you look at how Paul used this specific word in Galatians chapter 4, he seems to be chastising the Galatians for returning leaving Jesus and returning to their pre-salvation condition, which he describes as, verse 9, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, which by nature are no gods. You were involved in false worship. But, but, but now that you have come to know God, or, or, or better said, are known by God, how is it? Why, why in the world are you turning back again to those weak and, and, and worthless elemental things? That's the word. To which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Why would you do that? You, you do all of that reading and kind of put all of this together, and it seems to imply that this false teaching had something to do with an overemphasis on the worship of false gods, an emphasis on the spirit world. In fact, the word elementary principles could be translated that way, elemental spirits, which the ESV, uh, which you might have in your lap, translates that way. These guys seem to show up suggesting that there was something greater. There was something to be found in the spirit world that was better than Jesus, that would bring greater fulfillment. And Paul says, no, don't be taken captive by philosophies of human tradition, stuff made up according to the elemental, basic spirits and principles of this world. There's there's nothing in the spirit world that is better than Jesus. Why would you consider going back to that? Third way he identifies this philosophy of empty deception is that it is not according to Christ. Not according to what you have already received when you received the tradition, the teaching about Jesus as the Christ and the Lord. So the, 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 the teaching these guys seem to have come up with by their human intellect and human tradition, their man-made teaching, most agree, elevated the spirit world over Christ. So, the, the, the challenge before, well, me this morning is, is making appropriate application of this to, to our lives and to our situation. Let me try. Paul says, do not be plundered. Do not be taken captive by any system of thought that makes empty promises which are according to man's faulty traditions that are based on worship of deities or spirits outside of Christ, of any religion teaching, uh, religious teaching that does not have Jesus at the center. Why would you do that? Why would you leave the wealth of all that you have in Christ for something miserable and weak 
It makes empty promises. Listen to me. I know that's the hip thing to do. I know that it's the hip thing to do when you become a teenager, you know, you're, you're raised in church and you're, you're, your parents are Christian and you've heard about Jesus all your life and, and it's the really hip thing to do to now go study the world religions and try and determine truth for yourself. That's just great. And then you get into college and you go study all that stuff. Why would you go consider world religions and cults that promise more when there is nothing more than Jesus? This is Paul's point. I am pleading with you. Do not listen to these promises of empty deception. What more is there than, than Jesus? What's he got? Good question, second point. Having warned them, you're not done attacking them. You're going to come back to that in verse 16 uh, a little, uh, next week, Lord, uh, Lord willing. But having warned them about deserting Christ, he goes on to hold out the wealth of Christ again. The question is, why would you leave this? Here's what we find. First, you, you think there's something out there in some crazy religion of the spirit world that is better than Jesus, <laughs> okay? You want to go study the world religions to see if there is something better. Fine. Know this. In him, that's Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Take that. There may be spiritual beings, but remember they were created by God and for Jesus. And in Jesus dwells all the fullness of deity. All the fullness. Remember, that's a tautology. He puts those words together. You can't have more than all. You can't have more than full. But he puts it together. All the fullness of deity. Everything that there is exists in him. You want more? How do you get more than all the fullness of deity in Jesus? There isn't anything more. Notice this is in the present tense. All the fullness of deity exists in Jesus or dwells in Jesus in bodily form, present tense. What's my point? The scripture seems to indicate in a number of places that when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, when he took on humanity in the incarnation and became Jesus, that was permanent. He is forever the Son of God and now forever the Son of Man. I, I, I say that to you because I want you to understand the, the length that Jesus went to to provide salvation for you. Forever the Son of Man. So you think there's something better than Jesus? Well, He's God. Uh, second, verse 10. You're looking for something more than what Jesus has to offer? Know this. 
In him, you have been made complete. Bad translation. Um, uh, uh, better translated. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. And in him, you have been made full. That's, that's actually the word. In Jesus, you have everything that you could ever need. You can even have some of what you want. So why? please tell me, why are you looking somewhere else for spiritual fullness when that fullness is found in the full Jesus, in the fullness of Christ. This is his point. Third, while you're worshiping spirit beings, you need to know something. You think that's kind of cool, that's kind of hip. You need to know something. Jesus is head over them. Don't miss this. Paul told the Corinthians that the worship of any other God besides the true and the living God is actually a worship of demons. So that's kind of harsh. That sounds a little bit intolerant. Well, take it up with Paul. So you want to go out there and you want to worship another God, whatever his name is, Allah, Vishnu, Buddha, whatever, Know that they are demonically influenced, created and influenced, and Jesus is head over them. He is the authority over them. You want to leave Jesus and take a demotion, go right on ahead. Fourth, you think that there's something out there that will provide salvation for you better than Jesus? <laughs> Really? Verses 11 to 15, you are out of your mind. Look at what Jesus did for us. And this is where he just starts throwing, throwing on, throwing in all kinds of things that we have in Christ. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Oh boy, in Jesus, I get circumcision. Now, let's break this down. As most of you know, circumcision was a practice instituted by God himself in the Old Testament, Genesis 17 to be specific. And the point was to physically mark the the children of God as children of the covenant. But, but, but you should know that it was always, always, always intended to be a physical mark identifying an inward spiritual, spiritual reality. It wasn't the act, the physical act of circumcision that was the deal. It was that it represented, it was supposed to represent an inward spiritual reality. This is found throughout the Old Testament. This was the problem that God had with the children of Israel and the children of the Old Covenant. He, he kept reminding them, you have the mark, but you don't have the heart. In, in, um, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses was preparing the rebellious children of Israel to enter the land of promise. And in chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says this. Moreover, when you get into the land, the idea there. The Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This was always God's intention, that his people would love him. External circumcision never did anything other than mark what was supposed to be an inward reality, and they never 
did it. This was the problem with the old covenant. All it did was show us that we couldn't do it. It showed us that there was a need for a, for a new covenant, for God to do something in our, in our hearts. Paul takes this idea further in Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So this external sign was never the end. It was supposed to be a mark of something much more important internally. So Jesus came and he brought the new covenant, a covenant in which he, we would be circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands. In other words, he's talking about a spiritual circumcision or a, a cutting away of this body of flesh removed by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, this sinful body would be removed by the work of Christ. We have received a spiritual circumcision. When, when did this happen? Well, Paul tells us in the next verse. Your body of flesh, he's talking about our sinful flesh that needed to be removed, not just improved, removed, was accomplished by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Okay. So we received this, this spiritual circumcision when, at, at baptism. Several things I have to point out here. One of the questions that we have to ask is, is Paul talking about water or spirit baptism here? Some point out that Paul is talking about spiritual circumcision in verse 11, so he must be talking about spiritual or spirit baptism in verse, in verse 12. And I think that's very possible, maybe even likely, but in the end, I don't think it matters because water baptism is that external symbol that represents our salvation and our having been baptized by the Spirit. He's talking about when you were saved, you were baptized by the Spirit, and, you were, and your body of flesh was circumcised, was removed from you. And in water baptism, this symbolizes that act. We are buried with Him in death. And we are raised with him through faith to walk a new life in Christ. Raised in faith in the working or the power of God to raise us just like he raised Jesus from the dead. This is what Paul is saying. All that to say that baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our identification with his death, in fact, our being buried with him, the old man dying, and being raised with him to walk in newness of life. Now, I'll make a couple of other points as long as we're on the topic about baptism here. Some want to suggest that baptism is to the new covenant 
what circumcision is to the old covenant. That is, that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. That actually uh, is fine with me. It kind of actually makes sense. But what we find in the New Testament is that the outward that, that, that baptism is an outward symbol of spiritual birth. We could call it rebirth or being born again, dying to our old self when our old self is circumcised and being raised to walk a new life with Christ. And that symbol of new birth was always subsequent to the event. It, it, it was not placed in the New Testament, it was not placed with the original physical birth. In, in fact, this is the only place where circumcision and baptism are mentioned in close proximity in the Scripture. And here, um, the, the, the emphasis is not on physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision that happens at new birth. All that to say, I believe the New Testament teaches baptism in water, by the way, as an outward symbol of the reality of new birth within when your body of flesh was circumcised. And I want to say this very gently. I know there are lots of traditions out there that, 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 that see baptism as replacing circumcision and therefore they baptize um, babies. The only, only challenge with that is that circumcision was a recognition that you were within the, physically within the covenant. And baptism is a symbol that, that shows that you are spiritually within the covenant family, and it happens after your spiritual birth, which is why we practice believer's baptism here. Okay. So not only did Jesus provide a salvation through spiritual circumcision, but he also provided, don't miss this, life and forgiveness through his work on the cross. Think about that in your searches as you try to find yourself. You want something better than Jesus? You want something better than Jesus who forgives all your sin and gives you life? Good luck. You can't find that in the other religions. You can't find that in the spirit world, Colossians. Not there. Look at verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which simply means before you were saved and your body of sinful flesh was removed, you were, you were dead and Jesus made you alive together with him. When you were dead, meaning you were a spiritual corpse and there was nothing you could do about your very sorry condition, he made you alive with him. He brought you to spiritual life. This is a very similar quote and concept to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote about this time. And you, you were dead in transgressions and, or trans, uh, trespasses and sins. And that's when you walked formerly according to the flesh and, and, and then also according to the prince of the power of the air. Remember that? When you f followed and worshiped the elemental spirits, false gods, the prince of the power of the air. When you were dead and there was nothing you could do about where you were, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for you, even when you were dead, making sure you get it, he made us alive together with Christ. 
For by grace you have been saved. He made us alive in him, having forgiven all our transgressions. This, I believe, is the amazing truth of Christianity. We were guilty sinners, dead in sin, nothing that we could do. So in order to make us alive, he removed that which brought our death, namely our sin. He made us alive having forgiven all. Notice, not just some of your sin, all of your sin. Nothing to be held to your account. In fact, that's what verse 14 means. He took the certificate of debt. That's a business term. These are like IOUs or, or loan documents that, that list your, your debt. And these documents consisted of the decrees against us. That's talking about the Mosaic law. And here's how those IOUs work. The law said, don't, and we did. Let me record that. It's on your, it's on your account now. You're in debt. And the law says, do, and we didn't. And they said, okay, let me record that. And we had a debt we could never pay. We were spiritually bankrupt, such that the decrees were hostile against us. They were coming to get us and put us away. And Jesus took that certificate and nailed it to the cross and said, this debt is paid in full. Find that in another religion. Find that in the spirit world. Again, notice, not some of your sin, all of your sin nailed to the cross. I do not care what you've done. I do not care how evil you've been. If you have been made alive in Christ, your sin, all of it has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more to be held to your account no longer. And so I want to say to you very lovingly, whatever guilt or shame you are holding on to, you need to let it go because it has been forever nailed to the cross. Further, the last thing that we see that he did through his work on the cross was he disarmed the rulers and authorities. <laughs> Remember, those are terms that, that, that speak of the, of the spirit world. And here's talking about evil spirits, but, but these false teachers show up and is trying to get these Colossians to return to these gods who were known to gods at all, to these false deities. And he says, I just want you to understand something. You go back to that. Jesus has conquered them. He has disarmed them. He's made a public spectacle of them. He's talking about the the, the, the practice in the Roman world when the emperor or a general would, would come back after a, after a big victory and he'd lead us in, in a parade. There'd be this parade that would come into, into town and the soldiers would be behind him in, in, in specific order. And it was this big party, this big celebration. At the very end of the parade would be the, would be the conquered, would, 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 would be those defeated, shamed enemy soldiers that had been conquered by the victor. Paul says, I want you to understand something. As you're thinking about, as you're thinking about looking, as you're thinking about trying out some other world religions for size, as you're thinking about leaving Jesus, I want you to understand something. Jesus conquered everything that you could possibly consider. 
Why would you do that? So, imagine that you are the son or the daughter of a king because you are wealthy king so that you could have all of your heart desires, all the treasures your mind could imagine. Not that our king is indulgent while he lavishes his gifts on us. He does so in a way that is always best even if we don't always see it. Because your father, the king, is a loving king and he loves you deeply. You are the apple of his eye. And while he is very, very busy running a rather large kingdom, we call it the universe, he's never too busy for you. You can pop into the throne room whenever you want and he gives you his full and undivided attention. This, you see, is the kind of father that you have. And so when an imposter, a fake, a charlatan, a false teacher wants to woo your attention away from your benevolent, loving father, making all kinds of promises, I'll give you more. Here's the question, more of what? Why would I even consider going Would I throw away everything for the promise of more when I already have all that there is? His name is Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Father, you have graciously, King of the universe, Master, Ruler, Lord, (laughs) Father, you have given us everything in Christ. What an unbelievable list of wealth that we already possess. This is is different than those demonically created and influenced religions would offer. So why would we leave? Why why would we go? To whom else can we turn? You alone have the words of life. We thank you for Christ, our great treasure. May we follow him faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.